Jesus is really the Messiah, then how come we never see his name in the Old Testament? We have prophecies about him, but we never see his name. And so one day it dawned on him as he was studying his Hebrew Bible that indeed Jesus' name is found many, many times in the Old Testament. And you don't see it there in our Bible because uh, it's translated into English, obviously. But in the Hebrew Bible, and I'm sure you've heard this, it's a common thing today to think of Jesus as being Yeshua. I'm sure you've heard that name. The word salvation in our English Bible is the word Yeshua. Remember, Joseph was told that he was to call his name, his son's name, or the Mary's son's name, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And so in the Old Testament, the word salvation is the word Yeshua, and he began to realize that the name of Jesus is all through the Old Testament. One day he had a rabbi that he was uh, talking to, and the rabbi had made the same claim that Jesus' name was never seen in the Old Testament, and so he handed him his Hebrew Bible and said to him, read this verse out of Psalm 62 and verse 11. And so he's reading it out of the Hebrew Bible, and I'm going to read it the way that our Bible says it, except I'm going to change um, a word there, the way that he actually translated it as he was translating it, and he read it like this. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, say ye to the children of Zion, Behold, thy Yeshua cometh. And he said, You tricked me! And he said, but that's the way he translated it. Instead of translating as salvation, he said Yeshua. And all of a sudden it dawned on him. There's Jesus' name in the Old Testament. And so I want us to look this morning at some passages of Scripture where the name, the word salvation is found. And I want us to see there some ideas that can be given to us as to Jesus our Savior. I wonder if some of these passages of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning may have been some of the passages of Scripture that Jesus talked about when he was talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus after he was resurrected. I don't know. Remember, the Bible tells us that as he was talking to these disciples that he began in the Old Testament, the earliest parts of the Old Testament, and he took them through the Old Testament of the places that referred to himself. And maybe some of these verses that we're going to look at this morning may be some of those places. I don't know that every single place where the word salvation appears in the Old Testament necessarily refers to Jesus, but I think there are certainly applications that could be made from many of them, if not most of them, in regards to Jesus our Savior. But that uh, passage that I just read, I didn't read the end of it. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And we need to notice there the pronouns associated with um, the word salvation or Yeshua there, it makes it very clear that it's talking about a person. It's not just salvation, it's talking about a person. The end of the verse there says, Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And so he's talking, your salvation comes and it's referring to a person. So obviously this is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus. And then in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9 and verse 9 is another verse which refers specifically to Jesus. 
And Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. And so here now is the prophecy talking about Jesus and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We call that and we observe that on Palm Sunday. So I want us to take and look at some passages of Scripture that are certainly worth our consideration this morning. And I would like to think about this as Paul talked about and have the opportunity to speak of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so before we go any further, I'd just like us to bow in a word of prayer, please. Father, I thank you for the privilege this morning of being able to preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus. Lord, obviously we're not going to talk about them all because there are very many that we can possibly cover. But Lord, as we look at these few this morning, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would glorify Jesus. Lord, may he be seen this morning through your word that you have written about him. And I just pray that you might touch our hearts with the wonder of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, for your enabling, your power through me this morning to share these unsearchable riches of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. The first passage that I want us to look at this morning is the one that Warren read for us just a few moments ago out of 2 Samuel chapter 22. Written here, the God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield, in verse 3. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my savior. Thou savest me from violence. So I want us to see here the horn of my salvation. Salvation here is referred to as a horn. Now, there are different possibilities as to what the horn may be referring to here. Some take it to be the horns of a bull or a ram that they would use to display their power over weaker animals. And so that salvation here is referring to the power of salvation. But then there's the possibility of a horn that was used, of an animal that was used to carry oil. Uh, The priest would have a horn uh, that they would carry oil in. The shepherds would use the horn of one of their rams and they would carry oil in the, the horn and they would use the oil to anoint the wounds of their sheep. Samuel, when he went to anoint, king, uh, to anoint David, king of Israel, used a horn of oil with which he anointed David from. But I think there's another more likely possibility within the context of this verse that I believe it may be here. The horn of salvation is followed by the picture of a high tower as a place of refuge and a savior who saves from violence. So I believe here that the horn of salvation is referring to as a place of refuge. Now, how in the world can a horn off of a ram or a bull be a place of refuge? Well, it's not really referring to that kind of a horn. The altar that God commanded to be made for the tabernacle was to have a horn on each corner. Now, I don't know that it was an actual horn off of an animal, but it was shaped like a horn. 
And it seems that these horns could be sought out for as a place of refuge. And we find God actually presenting that thought himself in an indirect way, and it doesn't actually offer it that way as a possibility, but he refers to it in an indirect way in the book of Exodus chapter 21 and verse 14. And God said this, But if a man come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may die. So apparently the idea was there that if you had done something that was really wrong and you knew that you were going to be killed for it, that they would go and they would hang on the horns of the altar and they would claim God's protection that way. And God says if a person has done something like this and they have killed the person in guile, I will not protect him. You take him off the horns of my altar and you kill him. So God is saying here that there's a place of refuge. Now we do find where a couple of places where that actually happened. In the book of 1 Kings, chapter 1, verses 50 and 51, we find a story that takes place, and somebody did just that, and we'll come back and talk about what happened, or the details of it here in a moment. But I read this. And Adonijah feared because of Solomon and arose and went and caught hold on the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah feareth King Solomon. For lo, he hath caught hold on the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear unto me today that he will not slay his servant with the sword. Adonijah was the son of David. David has come to a point in his life where he's no longer able, capable of, of serving as king. And so Adonijah presumes that he is going to be the next king. After all, he's the next in, the, in line. So he goes and he sets himself up as king, and he even has a banquet uh, in his own honor. And he sets himself up as king. David finds out about it. Adonijah is not supposed to be next in line. It's supposed to be Solomon. So David goes and he proclaims that Solomon will take his place. Well, in those days, if uh, you became the king, one of the first things that you would do oftentimes would be to kill any competitors. didn't matter if they were your brothers, sisters, anybody else that might possibly think that they could take over as king or thought that they ought to be king instead of you, you'd kill them and get them out of the way so that your authority would be absolute. And so now that Solomon has been proclaimed king and Adonijah has gone and declared himself to be king, what's he thinks going to happen to him? Solomon's going to kill him. So he goes and... Hangs onto the horns of the altar, and he's claiming God's protection there and, and uh, wants Solomon not to kill him. Solomon doesn't at that point in time. And so there's the idea of refuge. Solomon was merciful, spared his life. As sinners, we are subject to the wrath of God. I sent out an email and about the movie there last night um, at the crossroads where I've been ministering to on Sundays. If I don't show up here on Sunday mornings and during the service, I've disappeared. That's where I've been going lately. 
And uh, one of the things that uh, I talked about afterwards was the fact that as I was uh, giving kind of an invitation, that we have a tendency to think that our sin isn't so bad. You know, after all, uh, my sin isn't like Hitler. In this movie, we saw uh, a father who was very abusive to his son. And uh, we think, man, I, I don't abuse my children like that, so I'm not nearly as bad as he is. But the problem is, is that God doesn't look sin that, w- sin that way. All sin, regardless of what kind of sin, whether it's what we think of as just a little white lie, to the abusive father, to someone who is a mass murderer like we think of as Hitler or some other people that have been mass murderers down through time, God looks at sin as sin, all sin is an offense to God. And because all sin is an offense to God, we are all deserving of God's wrath. We all deserve to have the, the penalty of sin, which is a, being cast into the lake of fire. God reminded Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4 and 20 there that God says the soul that sins should die. That's a a principle that God put into place when he created Adam and Eve. And he told them that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. You sin, you will die. And that's true for all of us today. Each of us deserves to die because of our sin. Now death comes, and physical death, but the death that we're talking about here is an eternal death where God will cast people into the lake of fire as an eternal death, an eternal separation from God in a place that is not going to be a very pleasant place. And we all deserve that. But Jesus is the horn of our salvation. He is the one that we can come to and we can cling to knowing that clinging to Him because we have put our faith in Him, our trust in Him, that we will be able to escape that penalty that is coming against sin. He's the horn of our salvation. Remember God promised in John chapter 3 and verse 16 that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the wonder. That's the joy. Romans 6.23, we're very familiar with, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the horn of our salvation. He is the gift that's been promised to those who seek refuge in Him as their Savior. So praise the Lord for the horn of our salvation. The next passage that I want to look at is found in the same chapter of 2 Samuel 22 and verse 36. And it's very closely related to the last verses that we've been talking about. But in 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 36, we read this. Thou hast given, also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy gentleness hath made me great. Here we're talking about... Salvation as being a shield. And here again, we're talking about the refuge. God is often spoken of as being a shield for us. 
For example, in Psalm 84 and verse 9, we read, Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. Proverbs 30 and verse 5, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. One of the verses that I've been claiming a lot lately is a verse in Ephesians that talks in Ephesians 6, which talks about the armor. And one of the pieces of armor is the shield of faith. And Jesus is our shield of faith. And I've been looking to him many times to shield me from different things, different thoughts that I'm having that are wrong or different things that are coming at me from different places. And I've just been feeling bombarded and attacked. And I pray, Lord, you, you are my shield. I need you to shield me from these things that are happening. And it's wonderful to experience the freedom from those attacks and those thoughts that are happening to me as God becomes my shield. First John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 tell us two ways that Jesus as our shield shields us. John says this, My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with our, the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, an advocate we would think of today as a defense attorney. The defense attorney is the one who you have been accused of breaking the law, and you get a a defense attorney to stand in your place, and he stands between you and the judge giving defense on your behalf. Jesus is our defense attorney. He's our advocate. He stands between us. And the Father, us and God Almighty. And He stands between us as the one who has taken our place. He has taken our sin. And so He becomes a shield between us and the wrath of God. And not only is He our advocate, but He's also our propitiation. Now that's a hard one to get your tongue around. But all it means is this. He has satisfied the wrath of God in his own death on the cross. And God has been satisfied with what Jesus has done in my place. And so he stands there as my shield. So that the wrath of God will not be poured out against me and against you because of our sin. When we put our faith and trust in him. He is our shield. And because of our acceptance of his death, the substitute for our own sin, we're shielded from the wrath of God. Also, another verse, we're staying in 2 Samuel here, it's kind of convenient for us this morning, in verse 47, another picture of salvation, which definitely refers to Jesus. The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of the rock, of my salvation. There's a scripture course based on that uh, verse. I won't teach it this morning, but maybe we can learn it sometime if you don't already know it. But he is the rock of my salvation. Psalm 61 and verse 2 says, From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. 
Then in Psalm 95 and verse 1, O come, let us sing unto the Lord, let us make a joyful noise unto the rock of our salvation. Now the rock that we're talking about here is not like the rock that I have in my rocks I have in my driveway. I have a crushed stone rock driveway. And so the, the rocks are about that big, generally speaking. Now we're not talking about that rock or a rock that you might take and skip across the water. No, we're talking about a big rock. We're talking about a huge boulder or perhaps even a cliff. Today's Ethan's birthday. And uh, mom, his mom, Vanilla, made a banner for each of the boys. And on each banner is a coat of arms that she designed for them that has some significations on there, pictures and designs or whatever that indicate something about their name. Each name has meaning. And I think it's Ethan that means steadfast. And so she's got this little miniature a picture of the rock of Gibraltar on there as the idea of steadfastness. I don't think that you're going to do much to move the rock of Gibraltar, right? And so she has that on there, the idea of steadfastness is his name. Joel means something else about God, too, that she's got Alpha and Omega on there. So, But the idea there of the rock is what we're talking about here, something that's steadfast. There's a reference in the Old Testament, though, that refers to, we can think of as Jesus as the rock. It's found in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. Paul is referring to the people of Israel as they're traveling through the wilderness and they begin to complain because they don't have enough water to drink. And we read there, and they did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And so there's two references that Paul is referring to there, incidents, that's found in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, Wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee, and there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So here now the people are complaining, they don't have any water, it's dry, and so God says, okay, I'll provide you water. You go and you smite with your rod this particular rock, and when he did so, water came out in abundance, and they had plenty to drink. But there's another incident where the same kind of thing happened. And God made a difference this time. He goes and he tells Moses to speak to the rock. The first time he said, smite it, he got water. This time, just speak to the rock. But then we read in the book of Numbers, chapter 20, verses 10 and 11, this. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he, Moses, said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. 
And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. God allowed water to come, but Moses had disobeyed. And so we read in verse 12 that the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because you believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given unto them. Now I believe that this is probably this incident that Paul was referring to in the book of 1 Corinthians, because Moses struck the rock in anger. And Jesus was smitten many times in anger on our behalf. Now let's call the type or it's a picture of an object or a person which symbolizes something else as in this case the smitten rock is a picture of the smitten Lord Jesus. But then there's another thought that the rock of salvation here might be referring to as well in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Peter writes this, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So Jesus here is being referred to as the cornerstone. The next study in the series that I did on this uh, looked at Jesus as why he is worthy to be considered as the cornerstone. We can't do that this morning, but the word rock here is that large uh, stone that we could be possibly talking about. The cornerstone is not referring to a little stone that oftentimes you find in the corner of a building and it gives the date of the time that the, the building was built and maybe the name of the building and so forth. No, The cornerstone in Peter's day was a huge boulder. It had to have particular qualities. It could not have defects in it because it was going to bear the weight of the building above it and it had to be depended upon through the lifetime of that structure. And so it had to be perfectly square. It had to be perfectly flat so that it could be uh, level, and the whole rest of the building would be determined, the levelness of the building would be determined off of that cornerstone. The squareness of that rock would determine the squareness of the building. And then it would also be level and also plumb, the plumbing of the building. Now we're not talking about the pipes, we're talking about whether it's level, if you will, up and down, straight up and down, whether it was perfectly straight. And so the cornerstone was a significant part of the building. As the rock of our salvation, Jesus was smitten. He died to make our salvation possible. But as a cornerstone rock, he is what determines the wonderful dimensions of all that our salvation is. All that we have of our salvation is determined by Jesus as our cornerstone. We can take our life and we can determine the direction of our life and the way that we should go and whether our life is in keeping with Him or not because He is the pattern that we go by. He is the 
cornerstone of our life. Before we leave this passage here, though, there's a reference, this reference in Psalm uh, 95 that I spoke to about earlier. There's something else that I want to think of here. Uh, Another important application out of that verse in Psalm 95 and verse 1. O come, let us sing unto the Lord, and let us make a joyful noise unto the rock of our salvation. We're to sing unto the Lord, but we're also to make a joyful noise unto the rock of our salvation. Now some people say they can't sing. And from our perspective... Probably true. They can't sing. Some people, they only kind of growl. You know? I remember years ago, I was wanting my boys to be able to sing, and and uh, I learned afterwards the reason why they couldn't. It was my fault, because I didn't like to repeat songs. I sang to them once, and I didn't like to continuously keep singing the same songs all over again. And I found out later that that's how children learn how to sing, is by hearing repetitions. And so I was not helping my boys learn how to sing. So one day I wanted my boys to learn how to sing, so I gathered them around me, around the piano, and I said, here, sing this note. And they go, uh, and they just couldn't find the note. I say, no, a little higher, no, a little lower. And Boy, they just were all over the place. They just couldn't do it. Now, praise the Lord, they've all learned how to sing since, and they, it wasn't by me helping them around the piano. They eventually learned how to sing, and so they can at least carry a melody. But the point is, God's not interested in how well you sing. You may not think that you can sing like a bird. You may not think that you could carry a tune in a bucket or even a dump truck. What God's interested in is a joyful noise. Now, you might think you don't even want to sing out loud in church because you don't want people around you to hear. But if you can sing with melody in your heart and you can make that noise, whatever kind of noise that you make and you do it joyfully, guess what? The people around you may not appreciate it, but God will hear the sweet music. And you can make a joyful noise unto the Lord in whatever way that you can sing a song, whether it's something that other people will appreciate or not, God will. But there's another way that we, other ways, I should say, that we can make noise. For example, in Psalm 84, we're given a way to make noise. For some reason, I've got Psalm 84, but the next verse I've got is in Psalm 98. So I don't know what I missed in Psalm 84. We'll have to find out that another time. But it should be Psalm 98, verses 4 to 6. The psalmist says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm. With trumpets and sound of cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord the King. So here's a possibility of making a joyful noise with an instrument. Can't do that either? Well, we're still talking about a loud noise. It's interesting that God is interested in loud noise. As long as it's something that's done in His honor 
to his glory and is done with joy. But here now are some other ways of making noise. In Isaiah chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. And in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things that is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. So first of all, we find here that in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord. We can all do that. Secondly, it says, Call upon His name. We can all do that too. Thirdly, it says, declare his doings among the people. That we should all be doing in the way of witnessing for the Lord and declaring to other people what God has done for us and what he can do for them. And then next, we should make mention that his name is exalted. Now, what we've just been talking about are all verbalizing something. Does it occur to you that talking is making a noise? And so here's a way that we can make a noise. Now the next thing there is singing, and so even if you can't sing like a bird, you can still sing in your heart. But you can also talk about the Lord. You can also make praise to the Lord verbally. You can call upon His name. You can declare His doings. You can make mention that His name's exalted. And if you do that with joy to the Lord, you can make a joyful noise unto the Lord by the things that you say that will glorify Him. The last passage that I want us to look at today is found in Psalm 51. Now we're probably quite familiar with this psalm. It's a psalm which declares the prayer of David. He had grievously sinned. He had committed adultery with a neighbor lady. She got pregnant and to cover it up. He had his, her husband, who was one of his best soldiers, was among the top 30 of his army, and he had him set in a particular place in battle so that he would be killed. And after he had died and she got done with his grieving, he married the woman. But in the meantime, in all of that, David has been accosted by the prophet Nathan, And Nathan goes and he lets David know that God knows what he did. And David finally acknowledges the grievousness of his sin and he goes and he prays to the Lord. And he confesses that he has sinned and against God only has he sinned. He had sinned against Uriah, he had sinned against Bathsheba, he had sinned against his nation. But he goes and he says, it's against you God that I've sinned, you only have I sinned against. And then he says this in verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. 
There certainly ought to be for us joy in our salvation in Jesus. Jesus is our salvation. There ought to be a joy that we have a relationship with him who is our salvation. He is the one that has made it possible to know the freedom from sin, the freedom from the wrath of God. Jesus is the one who has made all of that possible. And so there ought to be joy in him as our salvation. Because without Him, there is no salvation possible. Listen to the following verses. In John chapter 15 and verse 11, Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Jesus wants us to know joy, His joy, in us. Romans chapter 5 and verse 11, Paul says, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And then we find in Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now, there are certainly things that can rob us of joy in our life. Guilty conscience because of unconfessed sin or broken relationships with other believers. But God doesn't intend for us to live without joy. God desires that we know joy in our life. It's something that He desires for us to have. It's something that He wants us to know. He doesn't expect the Christian life to be dull and gloomy. Now sometimes we look like there's no joy. Preachers look at the congregations and the people sitting there. And, you know, and I've mentioned this, I think, back in our, my Sunday school class. Sometimes we look at people and if they smiled, their face would crack. God doesn't want us to be like that. He wants us to know joy, and it ought to be seen on our face. Now, joy is not, oh, I'm so happy and gay and lovely, you know, and fun. No, that's not joy. That's not joy. No, joy is something that comes inside. There's a settled peace that is there that we have that we can experience from our relationship with God. And especially our Savior, Jesus. But then, of course, we know that joy is a fruit of the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. So if we're not experiencing joy in our Jesus, our salvation, then there's got to be a reason for it. There are joy stoppers. There are things that we can allow to come into our life that will cause us to lose the joy that God desires us to have and the joy of our salvation, our relationship with Jesus. We referred to this in our Sunday school class too a while back, but there's a little course that you may be familiar with that's called Joy. Jesus and others and you, what a wonderful way to spell joy. Jesus and others and you, in the life of each girl and adults too. <laughs> J is for Jesus, for he has first place. O is for others you meet face to face. Y is for you in whatever you do. 
Put yourself last and spell joy. Jesus needs to come first in our life. He is the one that we ought to find our joy in first. Now, I find joy in my wife. I find joy in my children and my grandchildren. But Jesus is the one that we ought to find joy in first. He is the one that ought to come first place. And then as we think of others, Paul talks in the book of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. He says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Jesus, our salvation, when he was here on earth, put others first. How many times do we read that he got out and seeing the crowds, he had compassion. And he served them rather than fulfilling what it was that he had set out to do for himself. And so we need to put others first and ourselves last. And when we do that, we can experience the joy that God desires for us to have in Jesus. Do you have the joy of salvation this morning? It's possible that you do not know Jesus as your salvation. It's possible that you have never come to a place in your life where you have put Jesus as the one that you have looked to to save you from the wrath of God, to save you from your sin and its penalty. You may have gone to church, this church or some other church, all of your life. And you may think that you are saved when perhaps you really aren't because you really haven't trusted in him. Today, Jesus wants to be your salvation. He wants to be your rock. He wants to be your advocate. But he can only do that if you will come to him and put your faith and trust in him first. So if you've never done that, today I'd encourage you to make today the day of your salvation and come to know Jesus as Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how I thank you for your willingness to come so that you might be our salvation. Thank you that you are our horn, the place that we can hide to as our horn, our shield, that we can come to you for refuge. And thank you that you are advocate, our propitiation, that you stand before us in the wrath of God so that we will never have to experience that wrath. But I thank you that we can know your joy in our life as our salvation as well. And I just pray that there are things in our life that are stopping us from experiencing your joy, that you will show us what it is so that we may be free from that and experience your joy once again. And we'll thank you in your name. Amen. In closing this morning, let's turn to number 509.